It's time for the reading of God's Word. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. This is God's holy word. Genesis, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. But understand this. In the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without, self, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambers opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was for those two men. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. Uh, This morning we will look at this uh, few verses. This is, I was telling the deacons this this morning, in uh, school, uh, I was a freshman and I was in an ethics class. And in ethics class, it was a youth ethics class. So that whole year, we were looking at the ethics of religion and the ethics, how they intertwine into our faith. And uh, our, one of our main projects was to learn this passage. So I had to memorize verse 1 all the way to verse 17. Now, I don't remember it now. Uh, that was a long time ago and a lot of days in between. But I do remember coming to this passage, and I had it memorized, word for word. At any moment, you could have asked me any of the verses, I would have told you. And what I was telling the deacons this morning was this. Though I knew it, I didn't really know it. I hadn't studied it. It's one thing to to know God's Word, and it's a whole other thing to know God's Word. And so when I had set this out months ago and looked at this passage of chapter 3, I thought, Chapter 3 is going to be a really easy passage for me to teach because I, I know it. And then I get, began to dive into it, and I was like, oh, this week I was like, man, this is a really, really tough passage. What this passage has to deal with, the crux of this whole passage from verse 1 to 17 hinges on verse 5. I want to read verse 5 again to us this morning. It says this, having an appearance of godliness... But denying its power avoids such people. What Paul is saying to Timothy is this. The greatest danger of the church, not just in Ephesus, but as a whole, even today, is this. That there will be an appearance of godliness in the church, but it will have no power. And what what we see even now, if you turn on anything, read books, there's this appearance of godliness. But there's no power in it. There's no gospel power. You see, the gospel is what changes things. Knowledge does not change things. It's the power of the gospel. 
And so what was happening in the church of Ephesus was that there's men and women that had an appearance of godliness, but they had no power. And the saddest part for me, for the church of America, is this, that there is a sense of godliness, but there is no power in the pulpit. You see, the power is not my words, but the power is this. And even this morning, men are going to get up and they're going to talk from God's word. But I promise you this, there's people, they'll read one verse, and that will be the essence of the, the only time they come to the, to the gospel. That has an appearance of godliness because they're using the Bible, but in using the Bible, they're not teaching and preaching the Bible. They're teaching their own, and that's what Paul's been saying to Timothy. Avoid myths. Avoid these things. Avoid foolishness. There's a lot of men that are really gifted orators, speakers. But just because you're gifted at teaching and speaking does not mean you're speaking the truth. You, you see, Moses himself, it's going to say this later in the text, Moses himself knew he was not a great speaker. And because he wasn't a great speaker, he went to God and said, God, I don't really want to go say anything for you. And God said to him, no, no, I will equip you and I'll tell you exactly what to say. Well, here's the danger that's happened in the church. Men have now relied on their gifting rather than the one that gave the gift. And so many preachers, pastors, are using their gift, and it's a form of godliness, but has no power. And so that is what Paul is saying to Timothy here. He's saying, hey, there's people in your church, in Ephesus, that have this appearance. And now he's going to go back, and now he's going to unpack what that looks like in these first nine verses. Here's what it looks like to have a form of godliness, but it's denying its power. We see it in three ways in the text. We see it in misplaced love, misplaced character, and misplaced with a misplaced agenda. So Paul is going to say, you want to know what it looks like to have a form of godliness but have no power. It's misplaced in its love, it's misplaced in its character, and it's misplaced in its agenda. Meaning the agenda is not a gospel-centered agenda, it's a man-centered agenda. And then we're going to look at how in the next passage after that, 10 through 17, then what do we do with this? This whole thing Paul is saying to Timothy, this is what it looks like to be a worker approved by God. He's saying these, this is how it doesn't look. This is a, the godliness, the godlessness of a, of a worker. And then next time we come together to look at God's word, we'll look at what, it, what does it really look like to be driven by godliness. So let's look this morning at what is it, these three places. The first is a misplaced love. He first starts off and says it this way. But understand this, that in the last days there will come difficult times. Paul says to Timothy, do not be surprised that this is happening. This ought not to shock any of us. And so Paul in, in other translations says, mark this. You can count on it that this will happen. He will later on in the next section of passage, he will say this, if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. So he's going back to verse 1 and says this, 
it's going to be difficult for you. Like this life, this Christian life, will be difficult. People are always going to oppose the truth. It happened in the very first page of Scripture. That is what Satan did. He went and took the truth of God and distorted it. It had a form of godliness, but it had no power. And that is what happens in the church. And how does it start? Paul says, this is how it starts. This is how difficult times are going to start for you. I'm going to look at verse 2. I'm going to skip down to go to verse 4. But everything in between is sandwiched. There's three things we see. A misplaced of love. He first says this. This is how life is going to be difficult for you. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Skip down to verse 4. And they will what? They will, they will have a, a love that does not look godly. So there will not be a love for God. It says they will be lovers of what? Pleasure rather than lovers of God. So three things that we see. Love for self, love for money, and love for pleasure. So let's look at those just for a moment. What does it mean to be lovers of self? Lovers of self means this. I'll do whatever it is in my life to, to make sure I get what is mine. Like I am going to care for myself above all things. You ever seen people that love themselves? Now, what's happened in the church is this. And I, I've said this from the pulpit, but I want to say it again. You look at the greatest commandment. Love God, love others, love yourself. Well, people have taken that love yourself and put it above the other two. That is not what the passage is saying. We ought to love God first, and in loving God, then we'll have a truer understanding of who we are. John Calvin said it best, the great, the great reformer. He said this, John Calvin says, you got to know God and you got to know yourself, but you got to love God in order to know yourself. The more you love God, the more you're going to be revealed to who you really are, a fallen, wretched man. But if it starts with self, you'll never see yourself that way. You'll never see yourself the way God sees you apart from your salvation. You will have a high esteem of self. Now, Paul's going to go on for the next few verses and talk about what does it look like to love yourself. So we ought to ask ourselves this question, do I love myself more than I love God this morning? Do I spend more time thinking about myself or do I spend more time thinking about God? Right, is when I get up in the morning, is it all self-focused or is it God-focused? If it's primarily self-focused, you have a love for self. That is not what God says through Jesus in the greatest commandment. We are to love God so that we can know ourselves and knowing ourselves and who we are, then we can love other people. But it all starts with our love for God. It does not start with our love for ourselves. He moves on in the next part of the passage and says this. Not only are they lovers of self, but what? They are lovers of money. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What drives you? That is what Jesus is saying. 
What is your motivation in life? And I don't just mean currency, money. I, I mean, does, does comfort drive you? Because where do you get comfort from? Money. Do possessions drive you? Does achievement in your workplace drive you? What is driving you is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Let these things not be your driving force. Do not be driven for the love of money. Paul said it best in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. He says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We all know this passage well. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So think about that. that what, what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy, what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy is this. What is driving you is the love for money because it's the love for money, the likelihood of you going on in your salvation, your walk with the Lord decreases. Remember what Jesus said. It's easier for a, a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? Because we want our comfort. If we're honest with ourselves, we really want comfort. We want security. That is never promised to us ever anywhere in the gospel. That is why, again, he goes back to say this. There's going to be difficult times, verse 5, there's going to be an appearance of godliness, but it's going to have no power. This is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. If you come to Jesus, everything in your life ought to go well. If everything in your life isn't going well, then you have a, you have a, a gospel problem is what people would say. And that is not the gospel. The gospel says this. If you come to him, it's going to be really, really tough. So if you signed up to come to Jesus hoping your life would be easy, you signed up for the wrong relationship. Why? Because he said in verse 1, it's going to be very, very difficult. Because in being difficult, you cannot seek out pleasure. If you come to Jesus, it's going to be difficult, which is the void of pleasure. Now here's the beauty of that, though. The more you fall in, the, in love with Jesus, the more pleasurable your life becomes. Because now you have something greater than, than these tangible things. And so for us this morning, the first two things, is there a love for self? Is there a love for money? And the last one is this. Do you have a love for pleasure rather than a love for God? Look at that just for a moment. And the word pleasure means this. It's where we get the word hedonism from. It's what we would say is, man, everything that's going to make me happy. Happiness is my motivator. If I could just be happy, I'd be great. How many of us have heard this? Happy wife? That's just not true. And I don't say that that's not true because you will never be able to make her happy enough. If your motivation is happiness. There's not enough happiness to bring someone that much pleasure unless it's found in something greater 
than a person, Jesus. And so Paul is warning us and warning Timothy, hey, do not have a pleasure rather than a love for God. Do you love pleasure or do you love God? He's saying here, these people, these men in the church, love pleasure more than they love God. And so they forsake God for the desire of pleasure. So do not have a misplaced love. And now Jesus, or now Paul goes into a misplaced character. He says this, if you have this misplaced love, then your character is going to be off. And he lists 18 things. I'm like, dude, that's a lot of things, bro. So let me go through those 18 misplaced characters in verses 2 through 5. He says, if your motivation is a love for self, a love for money, and a love for pleasure, this is how your character is going to look. So now you can now do a self-assessment. Are these characters true of you? Because if these characters are true of you, then you know you have a love problem. So you can start with one or the other. Do you have a love problem or do you have a character problem? You have a character problem, you know you have a love problem. You have a love problem, you're going to know you have a character problem. So now he's going to go through the next few things. He says this, here's the things, proud or boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless or unloving, uh, unreconcilable, unappeasable, uh, slanderous or gossipous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, and swollen with conceit. I'm like, man, that is a lot. Let me walk through those few things. What does it look like? The first thing he says this, if you have a love problem, then you will be what? Boastful or prideful. This is a person that claims to have something they do, do not really have. He's talking in, in regards to character. So men in that day were going around, it'd be like what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing in their day. They were prideful men. But and you look at their life, their life externally looked like they had it all together. But what did Jesus say? You're whitewashed tombs. What you claim to have, you don't really have. What's going on outside of you is not true what's inside of you. You are prideful or you are boastful. You have a claim to something you really do not have. Now here's what's difficult. Remember, you have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Only you will know. Only you will know if what's true on your insides and outsides match. Only you and God will know that. You can deceive all of us. So the first place in your life, in my life, the life of this church, are we claiming to have something we really do not have? Next, he says this, you're arrogant. Well, if you're boastful and proud, what's going to happen next? You're going to be arrogant. These are just going to lead to each other. Arrogant in the text means this. You are placing yourself above other people. Remember what Jesus called us to do. Serve, not to be served. And he's saying these men are, are putting themselves above other people. It's what Jesus said again. What, what, at this table, which one do you want? The head of the table or you want the, the end of the table? Many of you desire the head of the table. That's Todd's international version. That's not exactly what it says, but that's the heart of what it says. Are we arrogant? Do we place ourselves above other people? Are we more willing to serve than to be served? 
He says this, you are abusive. Revival, re- revivals are what the word really means. It means to blaspheme God and to shame other people. That's what it means to be abusive. Ab- abusive in this text does not mean physically. It means more with words. It means I am going to blaspheme God and I'm going to shame other people in the process. You ever been around a shaming person? Like how small do you become? Why? Because they're prideful and they boast. Therefore, they're going to have to put you down in order for them to elevate themselves. I'll look over to my left for this next one. Over here. Are you disobedient to your parents? That's pretty simple, students. Got real quiet over there. They looked up real fast. They were all... I can see out of the corner. They think I got bad eyesight over here. I do have bad eyesight, but I can still see movement. As soon as I said disobedient to your parents, they perked up. Are you being disobedient to your parents? Is what your parents saying to you to do, are you actually doing what your parents are saying to do? Because if not, then you have a form of godliness, but you're denying its power. God's called you students to be obedient to your parents. If you are not, you are going against what God has called you to. Therefore, you are an ignorant and arrogant man or woman. So be uh, obedient to your parents. Now I'll get off the youth. See, that's what happens. When you used to be a youth pastor, it just kind of comes out of you sometimes. Kenneth, and I will say this with you in the crowd. I'll probably get in trouble for this one at home. Just be grateful I was not your youth pastor. Pastor Jay is awesome, but it's one thing to have your dad as your youth pastor. I promise that. I'm sure Hannah, every time Hannah, poor little Hannah's like, oh, I gotta go to youth group with my dad. Let's keep going. The next one is this. He says this. Do not be ungrateful. Think about that in your life. A lack of gratitude. Someone that has a lack of gratitude, is there a man who or woman who feels like they deserve to get what they get? And all that they get is good. Therefore, they don't have a gratitude when they get it because they think they deserved it or they're owed it. Think about that for a moment. How often in my lack of gratitude do I think I'm owed what God has given to me? I was saying this to our deacons this morning. So many times in my life, I miss out on the mercies of God, though they're new every morning, because I think I'm owed them. Like, I think I'm owed to get up and take a breath of fresh air. I'm not owed that. I'm not owed this morning. I'm not owed anything that I have. It's God's gracious kindness onto me. And yet if I'm honest with myself, so often I think I'm owed it or I deserve it. And therefore I don't have an attitude of gratitude. And so for me, for us, this church, let us look at where is our gratitude We are owed nothing. We deserve nothing. So everything we have is a gift from God. Therefore, we ought to be grateful for those things. The next is this. He says this. These men, these women are unholy. That means they have no respect for God or the things of God. Like all who God is is holy. All that God has given to us is holy. But we we don't see God as holy We won't be holy, and we will not have a reverence for him. Are we ungodly? The next is this. He says this. These men, these women in the church, 
They are heartless. That word heartless means this. They are unliving. It's an attitude towards people. It means to to be without affection towards someone else. To have no affection. That's what it means to be unloving. Thank God he was, God sent Jesus who was loving towards us. Remember, we did not deserve his love, but he has an affection towards us, so much so that he gave his life for us. Here's the next one. This may step on toes because it stepped on mine. They do not have a desire to be reconciled. They are irreconcilable. That means they have no desire to seek or to ask forgiveness. Here's what's true about all of us. All of us in this building have sinned against another human being. But what do we do? We we play the victim card. Well, I know I've sinned against them, but they've sinned against me, so I'm going to wait for them to ask for forgiveness. That's not the posture that Paul is talking about. What Paul is saying is this. All of us have sinned against another person So we ought to seek out being reconciled to that person before they seek being reconciled to us. If we play that card, you're playing the victim card. We are not victims. Bad things may have happened to you, but that does not make you a victim any longer because you have been set free of all that from Christ's blood. So do we have a desire to be reconciled to one another? How much more so if what would look like in the church body, if we just had this desire, I'm going to outdo someone with forgiveness. What would that look like for us? I told you it's a long list. Almost halfway done. The next is this. Where slanders are gossiped. That word simply means this. We're always looking to be right And in doing so, we're talking poorly of others. We build ourselves up and put others down. Now, that may never come out of your mouth, but how often is it in your heart? How often in your heart are you gossiping? It may not come out, but how often do you think of yourselves more highly than you ought? That's what he says previously in the text. Or are you talking poorly and down? about other people and building yourself up in the process. The next he says this, without self-control. That means to be very, very impulsive. How many of us are impulsive? When it comes to being in relationship with other people. We're not patient. We're not slow but we're impulsive. We have no control. It literally means power to control. Is what the word control means. I have a power to control it. So without self-control, I have no power to control. Which where, what is self-control? That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. So that will reveal to you and to me, is the Holy Spirit in me? Because if the Holy Spirit is in me, then I will have self-control. Let's keep going. This one's tough. He says brutal. Men and women are brutal. It means to be savage, untamed, and fierce. 
think of a wild animal, how violent they are. That is what Paul is saying. There's people in the church that are brutal. They are violent. How are they violent? Most of the time, it's not with their hands and their feet. It's with their words. He just said, don't be a gossip. And he's coming out of gossip and saying, don't be brutal with your words. Have self-control with your words. Four more, and then we'll move on to the next. He says next, not loving good. That does not mean good like, I mean, Miss Marilyn's good, good bars. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about, it's not the good things of the, the world. He's talking about everything that comes from God is good. Do we have a love for what is good? That's what he's talking about, God's word. Do we hate the things of God or do we love the things of God? If we hate the things of God, we have nothing good in us is what he's saying to us. The next one is this, do not be treacherous. That means do not be a traitor. It's the same word that's used of Judas. Remember how Judas, he had a form of godliness. He denied his power. I mean, Judas was with Jesus. Judas saw Jesus. Judas did miracles. Judas hung out with Jesus. But in the end, he was a traitor. And that is what Paul was saying. Do not be like Judas. Two more. Reckless simply means careless. Careless people are dangerous people. Because careless people, they don't really care about themselves. Again, if you like jumping out of planes, great, go for it. I think it's kind of careless. If you have no value of life, of your own life, how do you value somebody else's life? That's what it means to be careless. Do you value life? Are you just so careless? Like, it is what it is. That's called carelessness. It is what it is. It's carelessness. Like have a desire for something more than yourself. Do not be reckless. Reckless, careless people are dangerous people. The last is this. Swollen with conceit. That simply means a high value of self. Look where he starts the list and ends the list. Do not be lovers of self. Do not be swollen with vain conceit. The word uh, vain conceit in the text means this. It means an empty glory. That's what it means. Do you have a glory about yourself that's so empty? Like that, that's what Paul says in another one of his letters. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others more highly than yourself. Do you have an empty glory about yourself, an empty or a false sense of who you are? So in that, take a quick inventory. Do you, do I, does this church have misplaced character? Do we have misplaced character? We have a misplaced love. The last is this. I'll speed through these for the sake of time. There is a misplaced agenda with these men and women. Four places that are misplaced. Verse 6 is these men and women, they take advantage of the needs of other people. He says that in the text. For among them are those who creep into households. That means they go in and they take advantage of who? The weaker woman. They go in and they creep into these homes and they 
take advantage of them. They, they take advantage of the needs of other people. You ever seen that happen? Where there's a great need for something and these people move in and take advantage of the needs of other people? The church is notorious for it. It's sad. And I don't mean this church. I mean the church universal. The next is this. They take advantage of other people by enticing them with evil. The second half of verse 6. It says, They are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. These men, these women, now lead people astray. Remember what Jesus said, It'd be better for a millstone to be hung around a neck than to cause one of these people to sin. And that's what these people are doing. There's a form of godliness, but in their godliness, they're leading people to sin. The last two are interchangeable. There's a masking, there's a taking advantage by masking the truth. He says they are always learning, but are never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. It's spitting out data for the sake of data, but not for the sake of truth. Truth will always lead to change. Knowledge does not lead to change. The truth leads to change. And these men are using and masking the truth, but the, the truth has no power. And the last one is this. They deny its power altogether. That is what those two men, many scholars believe those two men are the two men that when Moses went into Pharaoh, there was two Egyptian magicians that were there with, with Moses. Remember what Moses did. He took his rod, he threw it on the ground, and it turned into a snake. What did the two magicians do? They threw their rod down and it turned into a snake. So it looked like it had power. And he's saying, but that is not the truth. So people can do things that look like the truth that aren't, are still aren't the truth. So they're denying its power because they can manipulate the power. But then there's a great promise in the text for all of this. He says this, but remember... These men are corrupted in their minds. They're disqualified regarding the truth and in their faith. And then here's the promise. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was for these two men. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel will always reveal to us what is true and what is not as true. And though today it may look like they're winning, there will be a day that they will stand before holy God and give an account for all and all the ways they misled people. So they might get away with it today, but there will be a day they will give an account for how they misled people. That is the scary part of the passage for me as a pastor. That ought to be scary for us. God, is there anything in my life that I'll have to give an account that masqueraded the truth that was not the truth? Which means I got to know the truth. Because so many people say, this is what God's word says. And when you go digging around for it, that's not in God's word. Now, it sounds really good, but it's just simply not true. Joel Olstein is the culprit of all culprits. This book is not about your best life now. But it sounds really good. And he can s sell out stadiums with that garbage. Like Joyce Myers, what she's teaching is garbage. It sounds like the truth. It's not the truth. You, I could keep listing names of these heretics that have a form of godliness but are so far from the truth of God. 
Stephen Furtick. I, I, could, I could sit here and name names all day. I'm saying that for your sake, not for mine. It's to protect you from false prophets. Like be, be like the Bereans. Everything that you hear, take it back to search the Scriptures to know if it's true. The Scripture will reveal to you, if even what I'm saying, take what I'm saying and match it with the Scripture. If you've ever wondered, why does Todd go verse by verse? This is why. So nobody can say, man, he took it out of context. I'm going to preach God's Word through the context of God's Word. But I still want you to take every word that I say and mash it against the truth to make sure what I'm saying is true. So that we don't become like these men that Paul is talking to Timothy about. Let us not be arrogant and conceited men and women. Let us never have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Let me pray for us this morning.